Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually conscious living in today's world. Here is your host, Dr. Laurel Trujillo. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, where we talk about yoga in all its depth and breadth as a path to spiritually conscious living in today's world. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the show. Today we'll be discussing how yoga principles guide us to build more equity and inclusion in our practice. My guest today is Dr. Stacy Graham. Stacy Graham is a sought-after expert on leadership, equity, and inclusion. Dr. Graham is the author of the book we'll be discussing today, Yoga as Resistance, Equity and Inclusion on and Off the Mat. Stacy is also the founder of Oya, Body, Mind, Spirit Retreats, which offers holistic wellness experiences for black women and women of color in the UK and beyond. She is also the co-founder of Radical Darshan, a 300-hour yoga teacher training school that helps students unlearn and disrupt normalized systems through critical thinking as well as compassion. She's a qualified life coach, certified mindfulness instructor, and registered with Yoga Alliance as an experienced yoga teacher at the ERYT 500 level. You can find out more about Dr. Stacy Graham at her website, stacyccgraham.com, and Stacy is S-T-A-C-I-E-C-C-Graham, G-R-A-H-A-M.com, stacyccgraham.com. She is active on social media at O-Y-A Retreats, Oya Retreats, and that's on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, Stacey. I'm really delighted to be able to talk with you today and discuss your book, Yoga as Resistance. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really honored and I look forward to the conversation. Me too. So before we dive into our dialogue about Yoga as Resistance, let's begin with a moment of contemplation. Let's begin how we mean to go on. Let's begin by being present right here and right now. So let's begin by bringing our attention to our bodies in space. Whatever we're doing, whether we're sitting or standing, walking or driving, just feeling our bodies in space. And in particular, feeling the surfaces that support our weight. If we're sitting, how is our weight supported in the chair? Where are our feet? Perhaps we're walking and we can pay attention to how each foot strikes the ground. And then turning our attention to the breath, just noticing as we take a fully conscious breath on the next inhale, and exhale. On the next inhale, feeling the cool air in the nostrils. And on the exhale, feeling how that air has been warmed. Continuing to follow our breath, trying not to change the natural flow, but just noticing our breath. 
Here's something to contemplate, a teaching from the founder and spiritual director of the Yoga Hour, Yogacharya, Ellen Grace O'Brien, from her book, Living for the Sake of the Soul. The vision of oneness naturally leads to compassionate action and service of humanity because we see the pain and joy of others as our own. Just as we are instinctively inclined to care for our own body when it is injured, so one who is awake cannot resist caring for others. Everyone walks on the spiritual path. There is no other. This path is reciprocity. When we discover that, the journey of awakening begins. Once again, Dr. Stacy Graham, welcome to the Yoga Hour. I've been looking forward to discussing your book, Yoga as Resistance, with you. Such a powerful book that addresses some very important aspects of how yoga is practiced in the Western world. Why did you write this book at this time? It's a question I get often. And honestly, I think it it was it was just the time for the book. So as you can imagine or you might not want to take yourself back to that time of 2020. We're in the middle of a global pandemic, a new disease that we don't know, and we don't know how things will develop. And then due to the restriction of freedom of movement, we're all forced to watch um, the violent death of a man in police custody. At that time, Some people were waking up and some people were igniting. They had already been awake and they knew what they needed to do. And unfortunately, in moments of action, we don't always get it right. Mm -hmm. A lot of yoga spaces, I will call them individuals, actual environments, practice spaces, brands uh, became active, but it didn't come across as sincere. Mm -hmm. And because of the community that I've built with Oya Retreats, a lot of that community said enough is enough to the people who were posting those images. So I was uh, inundated with requests to work specifically with different groups, teacher training schools and brands in the yoga world, in the yoga industry, if we're really honest. And through that work, it became really clear to me that one, there aren't many people who are bridging this, if you will, gap of yoga and industry and equity and inclusion and how we can still live our yogic principles in, if you will, a commercial environment. I also recognize that there's only so much I can do as an individual, obviously. And so I, I reached out to a publisher and asked them if they would be interested in supporting this book, because in my opinion, it's important enough to be published as a book and In publishing it as a book, I'm able to reach a larger audience and hopefully support people who are in different phases of that journey. Right. No, indeed. 
So the title of your book, I was really struck by Yoga as Resistance. It's a powerful title, and it obviously combines the word yoga, which is often translated as, you know, union or oneness with the word resistance, which can seem to imply, if not the opposite, something akin to the opposite of, of union. So would you share how you came to pair those two words together for your title? <laughs> yes. Um, well, I, I, I will share a little bit of it, but I do want your listeners, if they haven't read the book, um, they will find what is, uh, a, for me, a very special interview uh, that took place with someone I hadn't met previously, but someone I had followed for a long time who owns her own space in Chicago. And it's a really powerful interview. And she didn't know the title of the book, which is so interesting, and wound up using these very words. So that's just a teaser, hopefully, <laughs> to tease a little interest to go read the book. Yeah. Um, and I found that a very powerful moment. I actually got chills in the moment that she said, you know, this was yoga as resistance. Mm. Uh, you know, I do actually in the book, uh, speak to this notion of yoga means union, which is often used to gaslight people who have very real concerns about how, again, the yoga industry uh, has, you know, monopolized, if you will, yoga as a practice, as a wisdom tradition. And so what a lot of people may not realize who've come to yoga through you know, asana, physical posture practice, which is absolutely fine. And there's no judgment. I am one of those people, um, is that there's a whole world uh, that exists beyond it. And it's, it's one of, you know, it's an expansive world. And in many of the, the wonderful sacred texts that we can read, uh, there is a lot about resistance. Uh, even how, you know, yoga became, came to the West is about resistance. You know, I mentioned the story of Vivekananda and how, what his aspirations were in bringing yoga to the West in order to have, you know, the so-called religion of Hinduism accepted on the world religion stage, mm -hmm. right? But, you know, going further and further back, if we go back to the Bhagavad Gita, we're reading an epic about resistance, resisting duty, uh, resisting uh, violence, resisting purpose, uh, and then eventually, you know, with guidance from the great Krishna, uh, finding a way to resist that is actually in alignment with a particular uh, spirituality. So there were a lot of different influences and it was a hard, it was actually really hard to come to this title. And then one day it was just there. So I can't even claim that I knew from the beginning that this is what it would be called. But I think, you know, uh, all these different influences and rereading these texts and, and writing these different stories at some point, I, and also really honestly be honoring the origin of this part of my teaching practice, which really does come from June of 2020, uh, I don't think it could have been called anything else. Mm. Mm. That's lovely. What a great story. Um, I did want to just mention, because, you know, we're going to be talking about some things that are challenging for people and, and that self-examination can sometimes be painful when we realize that, you know, we are um, working in a system that has a lot of, um, 
impact from things that have gone, cultural conversations that have been going on for centuries, um, you know, imperialism, as you talk about, um, cultural appropriation, you know, that's definitely happened in the, and basically, you know, I was thinking, talking with you, I, I ohm before the meditation, before our little mindfulness and, and I ohm at the end. And we do it as a, you know, as a very spiritual, you know, practice. But when you look at even ohm, even that word, right? It's like, mm-hmm. if you can slap ohm on something, then you can yeah. sell it. You know? yes. <laughs> so, yes. so there's just this tremendous, you know, commercialization that's happened, you know, of, of yoga and of, um, you know, of, of these practices that are deeply spiritual. And I, I share your, your view of, of yoga as the way it's practiced for a lot of people in the West, yoga is a, is just a physical, um, it's a a system of physical practices, sometimes just calisthenics. I mean, just literally like, you know, a way to build strength and, and, um, and flexibility, which is great. I mean, even on that basis, I think yoga can be very healing and there's so much else. There's so much else that's there. There's so much deepness and richness, as I mentioned in, in the introduction, you know, this program is really about the depth and breadth of the yoga teachings, which, you know, most people are aware it's a, one of the six ancient systems of philosophy that came out of ancient India. So it's something that's been around for literally you know, thousands of years. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, the, the it's written about in texts like Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, which is not quite that old, but, um, you know, <laughs> uh, um, the Bhagavad Gita. Um, so anyway, I view that that uh, physical practice as a that's our big door. That's the broad door because right. it's so it's co- very common for people to come in through that and then become interested in the philosophy and become interested in practices like the meditation, which is really w- the way that that um, I feel Patanjali's Yoga Sutra looks at asana. We have all of Absolutely. these, you know, many. I forget how many is it. One hundred thirty-eight of the of the. Um, aphorisms, you know, that are in the yoga sutras, I forget the exact number. But um, there's literally only like one that's about that's about asana. And then people focus on just that one, you know, and just want to have this, you know, strong physical practice, which as I said, I'm not trying to, you know, denigrate, there's a real um, place and purpose for that. And we like to encourage people to go a bit deeper. So it's delightful you know, have you here to help us, <laughs> Thank you. help us do that. And, and one last thing about the book before I get off my little soapbox here. Um, I just think you did a lovely job of writing about some very difficult topics about looking at these things, looking at colonialism and looking at um, oppression and, and, but doing it in a way that's very inclusive. It actually was very meaningful to me that when you define depression, you defined it as something that can happen to anybody, even, uh, you know, something that can happen to uh, the, the groups that are in the majority can also, be, you know, can also be oppressed. So I just, I, I guess I want to open the door for listeners. If they're really interested in looking at this topic, I think you did a lovely, very open handed way of dealing with it in your book that uh, makes it very accessible. And then you challenge us to look at our reactions when they come up, which I think is lovely to be triggered into curiosity, um, rather than uh, be triggered just just to kind of, you know, for us to be triggered in some kind of a, you know, something comes up, that makes us feel what guilt or shame or whatever it is. And then for us to just stop there and, you know, back away and you encourage us to, to then become curious about that. Well, what is it, you know, about that? So anyway, I'll get off my little soapbox now. <laughs> I appreciate that though. It's, it's wonderful to hear. And I like this expression triggered into curiosity because it was 
something that was extremely important to me in writing the book, that there are practices throughout that support people with the different themes as they arise and practices that they can return to. Uh, even when they're, you know, in their daily lives. And it's also the way that I particularly teach um, mindfulness that um, always coming back, I think my my students would definitely agree, uh, whether annoyed or not, that I always say, you know, come back to, um, come back to this experience or this sensation or whatever it is and do that without a value judgment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then something lifts, yeah. you open something when you're able to do that. And it's not that you're able to do it every time, you know, your capacity will wax and wane depending on how well you slept, how well fed you are, how yeah. much uh, negative, positive stress and so forth you're experiencing. But it's that practice, right? Repeatedly. Oh, there's the sensation. What does it mean this time? Yeah. Yeah. No, lovely. So in the, in the introduction of your book, you share that you are interested in and have been supporting yoga studios and yoga teachers in creating spaces of, quote, equity and inclusion, quote, unquote. Um, and again, equity and inclusion is a major theme in, in the book. So would you share what equity and inclusion looks like in the world of yoga and the wellness industry for you? Great question. I think it's important to start with uh, the fact that this is how I think. <laughs> I'm not claiming this is like an Oxford or Merriam-Webster definition, um, but it is something that is really important and it's not a matter of semantics. It, it actually informs our approach to the work. So starting with diversity, as I mentioned in the book, I don't think it's an important thing to focus on because it's a statement of fact. The world is diverse. It doesn't matter if you are in uh, a society that is considered homogeneous ethnically. Um, the Even that space, that environment, that world is diverse because people have different points of departures. They come from different families. They speak different languages. They have different experiences from a very early age beyond those typical social identity categories like gender slash sex um, and so forth. So diversity is a fact. So let's just let it rest as a fact. Equity is important to understand because it's, it's on the path to something greater, yeah. but we do have to recognize, we recognize with equity that equality is not enough. We recognize with equity that, that there are people who have a different starting position yeah. and you know, it's not about politics. It's not about, um, you know, what side of the aisle you sit on. It is a, it is a matter of fact that unfortunately, if we do a systems analysis, we will recognize that certain people on account of their, you know, social identities have a different starting point. Yeah. And because of that, we can't simply say, let's give everyone equal access to opportunity, which would be equality. We have to say, no, instead of, let me, let me give it, let me just make this quick metaphor. If you were in the Oprah audience and some of the, some of the audience may be too young to know what I'm talking about, but 
I'm going to assume that many of your audience uh, listeners will know, you know, it was great. I never had the opportunity to sit in the audience of Oprah and, you know, you get a this and you get a that, right? So let's say you're sitting in that type of audience and they give out, you've always wanted a t-shirt of your favorite band, your band plays, and the t-shirt is all just one size for the entire audience. Some people go home with a great souvenir that they can wear. And some people go home with one that will sit in a drawer or they might, you know, give someone else on, on the next holiday. Right. That is the problem with equal versus equity. Right. So that's a great in, example. <laughs> hey, I want that t-shirt, but they didn't have it in XL. <laughs> right. You know, they didn't have it in my size and now what? Great. Yeah. Um, I can, you know, put it up in a display. That's so right. <clears throat> similarly in yoga, if you will, in, in the, again, mostly referring to the industry. When I look at any given studio here in London, London is a funny place because it's considered a very wealthy place. But who is wealthy is this is actually a small group of people. Mm -hmm. uh, many people who work in London work for less than 30,000 pounds a year. And if you were to research like living costs and so forth, you would you would quickly recognize that these people don't have a lot left over at the end of the month. So I walk into, you know, any of the main yoga studio chains and I'm asked to pay 15 or 20 pounds for one class that lasts 60 to 75 minutes. That is a problem. Yeah. If I want to uh, wear clothes that I feel comfortable in, no matter what body type I have, I might feel uncomfortable in those spaces because everyone has on 100 pound leggings. And I can't afford 100 pound leggings. And it's not like a spoken thing, but it is a bit unspoken because if you don't have on the 100 pound leggings, you kind of get stares. Mm. If you don't have the typical body, typical referring to hashtag yoga on our favorite social media sites, if you don't have the bodies that show up when you search hashtag yoga, and then the teacher beelines for you mm. when you're a newcomer or they assume you're a newcomer in their class and you say, no, I've been practicing for X amount of years. Really? <laughs> and that's the reaction you get. So there are all these hurdles before you've even started to practice that may keep you from ever uh, really experiencing um, the nectar of dedicated practice. Of course, you know, today with with YouTube and other opportunities, people practice at home and, and that's great. But that was really accelerated after 2020. Yes. Um, before then, it wasn't so common for people to find um, easily access uh, home practice in that way. Mm -hmm. So those are just some of the like bare minimum examples of where equity can easily uh, be targeted to ensure that people of all sorts have access, have a choice to access the practice. Mm -hmm. And inclusion is what comes from equity. When we have different people who feel comfortable in these different uh, practice environments, whatever practice it is, I'm not only referring to asana, when we have people showing up to kirtan, when we have people showing up to meditation, when we have people showing up to posture practice, 
then something emerges that is very different from what it would have been had we not made those changes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's great. Another important theme that you write about in the introduction is that despite the use of the word yoga in studios around the world, the majority of them are not, as you mentioned, true to the wisdom wisdom tradition that is yoga. So big, big yoga. Um, Would you share a bit about your own journey into the wisdom tradition of yoga? Yes, I will uh, keep the story short. There's a longer version. If you like it, please reach out. Um, The short version is uh, I lived um, in Germany for a very long time. It's the place that I would consider a home. And I was, I had been practicing for years in a yoga studio that I thought made me pretty happy. Um, I come from an athletic background. I was having some issues, um, physical issues, and eventually we sourced that it came from my hard muscles and my neck and shoulders, which continue to bother me today. And, and so that's how I found my way to yoga. It was recommended to me as something to do to support um, allowing the, the muscles to become more supple. And then years later, while I was working on my PhD, uh, one of my close friends, he was doing his postdoc in physics, very different world for me. And uh, he suggested, he was from Mumbai and he said, hey, you know what? I can see where this path you're going down. I've, you know, I've been here in this valley. I want you to make it to the end of your PhD. Why don't you go to India for a few months and just, you know, get a change of change of scenery. You've always wanted to go. And the reason I always wanted to go was actually because my during my master's program, a lot of my work was focused on the South Asia Institute. So I've I've studied at the South Asia Institute and I've studied yoga and I've never brought these two things together. It's really important. <clears throat> so off I go with his support. I start in Rishikesh. His mother had um, kind of started an itinerary for me, but after that, I knew that I would just kind of go where the wind blew. But I started in Rishikesh at the International Yoga Festival, and this is not um, to this is not a reference, so I'm not saying people should go. But this was my experience. Uh, I haven't been in many years, so I also can't claim that I know what it's like today. But when I went, it was it was a life changing experience because. I was a PhD student. I was working as a lecturer at the university where I was doing my PhD. So I didn't have loads of money. And I I got lucky and wound up staying in the housing that wasn't fancy enough for the Westerners because an Indian woman had booked it for me. So that meant I was surrounded by people from India who had come to the festival because the festival is very international. So there are people genuinely from the entire world there. But those people became my friends and we're still friends to this day. And it was with them and with the teachings, because I went to every teaching possible, also because they suggested it by um, what I don't I don't want to use um, Sanskrit words the entire time. But, you know, great masters of yoga philosophy who were offering lectures there. And I'll never forget it. I mean, I, from the first moment, each of them started talking. I was hearing things that I had never heard before, and I I would have never related it to yoga. And I was surrounded by people who were 
not of European descent. And it was a very, very special moment. Um, and it extended. And, you know, I stayed in, in India for three months that first time and continued on my travels, met some of those friends later in different parts of the country, but also continued on my own travels and then later went back to do my first teacher training there. Mm. So, and at that teacher training, again, I was surrounded by, I think there were maybe five Westerners, including myself, and the rest were people from India. And so it's just a completely different experience that I had. And I could contrast it because then I went back to Germany and went back to the studio and recognized how much was missing from those teachings. And I'm not faulting the studio from that because those people had studied in India. I think it's a part of the hyper-commercialization. Your studio has to survive. So you make decisions. Mm -hmm. I think you can make better decisions, but at the time, you know, that's, that's the decisions that that particular studio made. And I'm very grateful that I had the privilege to be able to travel to India and to learn from some great minds who, you know, who Indians themselves held in high regard. And not everyone will have that opportunity, but that was my path to the wisdom tradition. Wow. With that, we've come to about the midpoint. As a reminder, I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the Yoga Hour. And today I'm here with Dr. Stacy Graham, author of the book, Yoga as Resistance, Equity and Inclusion on and Off the Mat. You can find out more about Stacy Graham at her website, stacyccgraham.com. We'll be posting the links to her website on our website, theyogahour.com. We welcome your comments and questions. You can contact us via that website, theyogahour.com, where you can also sign up for our mailing list. <clears throat> Stacy, there's so much in your book that I could ask you about. I, I did want to dive into some of the um, some of the ways that you uh, pull principles from the eight limbs of the spiritual tradition of yoga to guide the structure of your book. So you talk about tapas, ahimsa, asteya, and satya, tapas or self-discipline, ahimsa or harmlessness, asteya or um, non-stealing, and satya as uh, truth, truth-telling. Um, how does the principle of tapas apply to the work of transforming the yoga industry? Simply put. <laughs> I know we could talk for the entire rest of the conversation just about that one thing. I know. Simply put, it has to be about action. That's how I would define it and not one action. And then I'm good. Uh, it is <laughs> continued. It persistent, patient, persevering action. Mm -hmm. That is what tapas will offer us on this transformation of the yoga industry. Um, and it's because, you know, there are two things that can happen. What I heard and continue to hear from people who attend my workshops or trainings is that, you know, they read this, that, or the other book and they get it. And when they say they get it, they're not including themselves in the work that needs to be done. They're talking about this amazing external other that is bad, right? So there's judgment. That other is bad. That other hasn't educated themselves by reading the books I have. And that is where my energy needs to be focused. 
Well, in my workshops, my inner, my, my uh, approach is very experiential. So you're not going to leave without doing some of your own work. And that's when that shift happens where, you know, participants come up to me afterwards and say, you know, I read this book and I thought I was good. Mm-hmm. And I realize, oh, actually, I am a part of the problem. Then there's the other category of people who get that, if you will, the the fire is ignited, but they either suffer quickly from overwhelm because they don't know where to start, or they suffer from burnout because the fire is consuming them from within. And for those people, I always say, remember, you have a lot of agency, even with small actions. What studio do you choose to practice at? I'm not saying you have to stop, but think about what's happening there. Who do you see? Who greets you? Who who are the front of house staff? Uh, what vendors do they have there? Um, who are the teachers? What, you know, what uh, part of the city is it located in? And do you see that part of the city represented in the studio? You know, these are little things, even questions that they can be asking. Um, What about access to actually getting into the space and so on and so forth? There's so many things that can spark conversations without burning out, without feeling overwhelmed, without uh, taking on a a kind of savior complex, but they can lead to real change. Those are some great ideas of questions about, you know, how to start uh, the process. Um, would you share about uh, Ahimsa then? Um, how the principle and practice of Ahimsa or non-harming, it also can be defined as kindness or compassion, is important to the work of transforming the yoga industry? Absolutely. I think there's many paths. Um, and in the book, I really emphasize minimizing harm because I feel that in many progressive activist spaces, we've gotten to a place where it's about no harm and that's not possible. So I always talk about in, in trainings and workshops, I use the term safer space rather than safe space, because I can't guarantee a safe space. Everyone is bringing their own stuff with them into the space. But what we can do is create a space together where we have particular rules or, you know, um, agreements that we've created together. And we try to adhere to those to the best of our ability. And we're committed to candid conversation when things come up. This is one way of minimizing harm. And so in the space of um, whether you're coming into yoga spaces as a practitioner, a teacher, or a brand, there are different ways that you can minimize harm. So as, and I know we probably have a lot of different listeners, but I'll just give an example for brands, even um, if that feels, because I think for a lot of people that feels furthest away, um, but I'll give an example for brands and I'll give an example for uh, how teachers can minimize harm. So for a brand, as someone who kind of works in that industry these days, but don't tell anyone, um, (laughs) (laughs) um, you know, what I try to explain to people, brands are not uh, people, of course not, they're brands, but there are people working behind the brand. And one, 
super interesting way that I've been kind of on a soapbox about recently is building advisory councils. Hmm. So instead of uh, you know, waiting till the last minute or you know, something happens and then writing a statement and then it not being well received because it doesn't feel sincere because your brand has never done anything on the subject before. You have to do internal work. Yes. We encourage that work to have an external impact. So a lot of the time people are worried about, but do people know that we're doing it? <laughs> they will know that you're doing it if you're doing work that is sincere, it started internally and it, and it, you know, kind of waves out into external impact. And one of the ways you can do that sincerely is by creating an advisory council. So let's make it easy for you. A lot of people talk about Gen Z these days. Gen Z is all the hype. Millennials, Xers, boomers, no one cares about you anymore. It's all about the Gen Zers. We've got to reach them, right? Yeah. How do you do that sincerely? Well, you you make sure that you're in dialogue with Gen Z folk. Mm -hmm. They want to talk to you and they're very, very interesting. And they think in many ways quite differently than even, you know, the next generation over millennials. So if, and I'm using this example because I think um, it's sometimes easier to make an example about age than it is about race. So we do have to work inter intersectionally. We do have to work across these different social categories. But if you just think about that, oh, we want to reach Gen Z. Well, let's talk to them. Mm -hmm. let's, let's create a group that's representative of the people we want to talk to, who we want to serve better. And let's listen to what they have to say. That is a way to minimize harm. Doesn't mean you're going to get it right. Because again, the group is representative. It doesn't mean that everyone will think like them, but it is helpful. Similarly, as a yoga teacher, let's, let's, you know, zoom in further as a yoga teacher. And again, it doesn't matter what type of yoga. If I'm not doing the work, then I can't teach it. It's that simple. One of my teachers always says, when you're teaching, that's not your practice. Mm -hmm. And that was my mindfulness teacher. He said, when you're sitting in the teacher seat, you know, delivering or offering a guided practice, that's not your practice. <laughs> and it's important, right? I think a lot of people forget that. Similarly, when you are teaching a, a posture practice, an asana class, that is not your practice. And you have to be committed to your own home practice with no teachers involved except the self because it's humbling. You're not, you know, you have to keep coming back to your own practice and staying in honest dialogue with yourself because that's when this compassion breaks open towards the self, which is a, also important in Ahimsa. But everything that, I think the things that I teach best are the things that are really hard for me to do. Mm. So one of the hardest postures and, and this is real. One of the hardest postures for me has always been Adho Mukha Svanasana, downward facing dog. Why? Because of my neck and shoulders, what I talked about earlier. I have been told that I teach that posture, which a lot of people, you know, talk about being an easy posture, a beginner's posture. It should be a resting posture. When I hear it's a resting posture, I get very upset. It's not a resting posture. <laughs> me too. <laughs> <laughs> but because I've had to work so hard at that posture, 
and not with force, with a lot of time, it's been years, I teach it better. And that is what we have to do. We have to, we have to be committed to our own practice. So we remain humble. We offer ourselves compassion and we're able to in turn offer our students or whoever is studying with us compassion. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's lovely. So say you are a, a practitioner and getting back to your other example, you know, of asking the questions about the studio where you may, you know, take yoga classes. So um, how do you see the practice of ahimsa unfolding for someone like that, you know, is going to a, a studio and maybe they've noticed that, you know, their studio isn't as, you know, inclusive as, you know, of the neighborhood, for example, it might be, um, or even age-wise, you know, in terms of the mm-hmm. practice. I, I love that as an example, because it's a lot less charged than, mm-hmm. you know, than the racial one. Um, so how does ahimsa factor into how they might approach um, trying to uh, take action? Great. So when we're trying to take action, we have to remember, or we have to remain in tune with what is our underlying motive? What is driving us? It's very important to know this about ourselves. When we're trying to create change for a group that we might not be a part of, This is where that H for humble humility comes in again as a practitioner. If you want to, for example, ask those questions, you practice non-harm or minimizing harm by one, uh, not othering that group that you might be raising attention about. Um, You're not speaking on behalf of them if you're not a part of that group. Perhaps you... um, you're certainly not going to your friends who represent as such to say, look at this great thing I've done. <laughs> um, you know, there are all these little things that occur that are a window into what is motivating us really. And so that's why I started there. Be clear on your motivation when you're having those conversations. Also, you know, there's no reason to attack the front of house person who might have very little influence over the decisions that are made. So minimizing harm also means how am I in dialogue with the people who may or may not be responsible for these decisions? So we sort of touched on this with some earlier comments, but um, asteya or non-stealing is something that, that, when you begin to look at it, you realize, like I was saying about Ohm, you know, and how much um, there's been a taking of of that symbol and using it for commercial purposes for someone to make to make a profit. So, would you say a bit more about that? How you see that principle of asteya playing out in uh, the yoga industry, and how we might, um, you know, begin to look at transforming that. Asteya is, I think, a really painful one for a lot of people, especially people who were raised in this wisdom tradition. So I just want to honor that first because I was not. Um, you know, there are simple steps and I don't want to get you in trouble. So I'm, I won't name brands, but, you know, there are simple brands that you just don't need to buy that have used the word yoga or nama whatever 
ohm, whatever, you know, they've created these, these new words that really diminish um, the profound meaning of those words. As a consumer, just don't do it. <laughs> don't wear it. Um, in a place like London or the United Kingdom in general that has a very large South Asian population or a population of South Asian heritage, it's important, you know, when you go to these big uh, music events or festivals and you see people using bindis and saris and other things as costumes, Mm -hmm. you might not spot that as easily as you would I think today there's probably even though you do see this as well here but you know I think there's probably more awareness today about using something that's imitating a Native American or first nation headdress you would probably be called out faster for that but putting something between the eyebrows is very similar and it's really important to understand that the people who come from within that tradition are often harassed ridiculed and humiliated for doing the very same thing So the non-stealing, in some ways, as a consumer, if you will, uh, irrespective of practitioner, teacher, as a consumer, you have a lot of power to change that. You don't buy those things. You don't wear those things. You um, you call in, you know, friends, loved ones who do that and try to help them understand why it's inappropriate. I'm not saying it's always inappropriate. There are. I, you know, when I was in India, my friends, they were like, we're putting the sari on you tonight. <laughs> we're going to this event and we're going to the function and you're going to wear a sari. I'm not saying that it's always inappropriate, but I think, I think listeners know what I mean. So there's an opportunity there. And then again, as a consumer, there's an opportunity to, you know, talk to your teacher. I know it's only a 60 minute class, but I would, I'd be so grateful if we could, you know, understand why. We're, we're chanting Om or what it means or what this other Sanskrit chant means. If we could even just take a piece of it each class so it doesn't take too much away from the 60 minutes or 75 minutes that we have so that we better understand it. Um, or, you know, I know a lot of people feel that using Sanskrit words for the postures can be a way to make a class less accessible. And I would disagree. I think it's really important to bring both in. And, I, you know, I make the, the example often, if you're a doctor or an attorney, you're proving your intellect by using Greek and Latin. That is what the West has decided, uh, you know, is a sign of intelligence. So why does it then all of a sudden become a problem if Sanskrit is used in in a yoga class when we have the origins of yoga in, in Sanskrit? And so there are ways to continue to make the language accessible to people while still carrying both Sanskrit forward and whatever other languages is being predominantly spoken in the space. Mm-hmm. Just just some examples. Yeah, well, that's great. I uh, as a as a Western trained physician, I can I, I sometimes thought that the reason medical school lasted four years is because I had to learn so much Latin and Greek in order to practice medicine. Um and I think the way that you talk about it in the book of, 
it really is honoring the tradition that it came from. And Sanskrit, I think, is such a wonderful language because there are so many concepts that are line, uh, that are delineated by Sanskrit words that we don't really have an English word that can really, like states of consciousness, you know, or chitta, mm -hmm. you know, the mental chitta. field. Mm -hmm. You know, there's not really there's not really an English equivalent of that word. So it's it's um, I, I just really like the way that you approached it um, in the book. So one of the other principles, one of the other uh, core teachings of, of um, yoga, another of the uh, yamas is satya or truthfulness. How do you see truthfulness as important to the work of uh, transforming ourselves, our culture and the yoga industry? <laughs> yeah, that's a tricky one, <laughs> to be really honest. Uh, I like to... Uh, I like to work with lowercase and capital letters to help people. Uh, you know, I, I do think it's important to acknowledge um, that people have their own experiences and there's, and that can't be changed. We have to acknowledge that. And that is their reality. And I'm not denying that. And at the same time, something can be true for me because of my social location but that doesn't mean that it is truth with a capital T. Mm. And that's a, my understanding of that truth with the capital T is a very spiritual one. And my understanding is that we can't get to a truth with a capital T individually. That is something we can only do in community. Mm. And we have to be connected in community to and that's something that we'll always continue to aspire to. I don't think it's something that we reach in this particular life form, unless, of course, um, you know, you you're able to um, through samadhi or nirvana or whatever you call it um, have that that glimpse into the capital T. So doesn't that take so much pressure off of arguments and debates? <laughs> then we can just accept um, that. You know, and I'm not claiming to to that there I'm fully aware that there are people who believe that harm is okay. Mm -hmm. So you can't take you can't just take the uh, satya out without doing the others that we've talked about. That's a really important thing for me to to just kind of mark here. So I'm not saying that you should remain in dialogue with people who are promoting or you know committed to harming. Um, your identities. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is there are people who are committed to this work and we don't see eye to eye. And that is a part of being human. We have different realities due to our different social locations, our different consciousness, our different chitta, you know, our different practices, our different approaches, our access points into this work. But that doesn't have to prohibit us from working together. And I feel often in activist spaces or advocacy spaces, and especially on social media sites, things can get very heated because we're not listening to one another and everyone is telling the truth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is my truth. I will not be silenced. And no, you should not be silenced. And at the same time, as you just said, it is your truth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, yeah, it's interesting. I hadn't thought about it in that, you know, in that, uh, from that perspective, I, I, for me, truth with a capital T is the big truth, the, you know, the, um, the absolute reality, 
the, um, you know, that space that, that we can touch into sometimes when we're lucky, you know, in, in uh, meditation, we can have that direct experience, you know, of that truth. But I think it is really, really a good practice to realize that a lot of what we hold on to as our own personal truth is a, is a relative truth. And that allows us to approach things from that perspective of being triggered into curiosity. It's like, oh, wow, that person believes something very, very different than I do. Um, that is really interesting. Instead of just saying, okay, I'm not ever going to deal with that person again, you know, or, or, or worse, calling them, you know, like that. Yes. That's <laughs> <And> so-and-so. <laughs> um, anyway, I, I, feel, I do feel like if we can't find a way to talk to each other across differences that um, – and it, seemed as though, it seems as though that has become much more of a difficult practice um, in these – in these kind of uh, uh, splintered times. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we can't find a way to talk to each other, uh, uh, you know, about these kind of, some of these differences that, um, that that's, it's not a uh, positive for us going forward and being able to recognize things as, uh, as relative truths, I think is a way for us to then be able to listen to someone's relative truth and not necessarily have it threaten our relative truth or to watch actually in our bodies as we're in those conversations, those difficult conversations and watch what's going off, you know, in our bodies and be again, triggered into, instead of becoming defensive, which again, I, I'm not saying that I can do this all the time because I certainly get <laughs> defensive, um, but you know, be triggered into curiosity. It's like, wow, that's interesting. Like, wow. You know, and, and as you said, when was the last time that I felt that? And, right. uh, and what is that, you know, what is that feeling in my body? What does that mean? Uh, for me, I should mention that you do a great job of incorporating these practices along with the along with your writing where there's embodiment practices, you know, throughout the book and then journaling prompts as well, where you encourage people to take time and look at these kinds of questions about why, you know, why it is they're, you know, they're being triggered. And with that, we almost have come to the end of our time together. In closing, what words of encouragement or inspiration would you like to leave with our listeners? It's great to to leave on a hopeful note. I like, I, I think hope is really important, more important than optimism, to be honest. And what I hope for your listeners is one, that they leave feeling empowered, uh, recognizing their own agency in doing this work, irrespective of identity, location, um, perceived uh, wealth, cash wealth, I should say, everyone has the power um, to do this work and to play a role in in true change. And don't diminish your role by saying it's, you know, it, it doesn't mean much or it's too small. We all have a role to play, even if it's just asking questions, even if that's um, what you feel comfortable and, and confident enough to do. And then I would say that to do that, you have to stay true to your practice, whatever your practice may be. Your practice may be, for example, one of my main practices is gratitude. And so at my daily gratitude practice, um, I've been doing for almost a decade now, and it really makes a difference. So whatever your practice is, and I'm, and I mean that genuinely, stay true to it and feel and re 
um, rediscover again and again how empowered you are, how much agency you have to play a role in transforming what is a commercial industry so that we can truly honor what is a phenomenal wisdom tradition um, that is offered to people of all faiths. Mm-hmm. Yeah, beautiful. You've been listening to The Yoga Hour. It's been my pleasure to share this time with you. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, producer and host of the show. My guest today has been Dr. Stacy Graham. You can find out more about Dr. Graham at her website, stacyccgram.com, and it's Stacy is S-T-A-C-I-E, C-C, two initials, Graham, G-R-A-H-A-M, stacyccgram.com. We will also have a link to her website on our website at theyogahour.com. You can also follow her on social media. Her tag there is Oya Retreats, O-Y-A Retreats. And she's on active mostly on Instagram, but also on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Stacy Graham, for joining me today and for writing a, a beautiful book, Yoga as Resistance. Thank you so much for having me. Well, hope we hope that listeners will join us for the many online programs offered by the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, which include daily online meditation in the morning at 6.30 a.m. Pacific, in the afternoons at 4 p.m., and on Monday evenings at 7.30 p.m. Those are all Pacific times. We also offer a Sunday satsang. Satsang is a Sanskrit word meaning a gathering of truth seekers, and that happens every Sunday at 10 a.m., again, Pacific time. There is an upcoming retreat, spiritual practice retreat, for those in the second stage of life, ages 25 to 50, and that's coming up at the end of January 2023, January 26 to 28. You can find out more about that at the uh, CSE website, csecenter.org. Um, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien has a Kriya Yoga podcast available to subscribe to, kind of a companion podcast to ours. It includes talks and classes uh, that she has given. You can access those on um, Apple Podcasts, um, other podcast channels as well, Kriya Yoga podcast. There's an upcoming silent meditation retreat with Yogacharya O'Brien, March 30th to April 1st, on site at the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment in San Jose, California. Again, all of these classes you can access through the website csecenter.org. Join us next time on the Yoga Hour when I will be joined by Shantala Sri Ramaya to discuss Vedic chanting and its impact on spiritual growth. Also, later this month, I will be joined by Mark Nepo, best-selling author of The Book of Awakening, and he will be a guest coming up. The Yoga Hour is a service project of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, a meditation center in the Kriya Yoga tradition. We'd love it when you subscribe to the Yoga Hour podcast. Thank you to the Yoga Hour team, founder and spiritual director, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, assistant producers Anne Hayes, Mickey Coronado, and Christine Sote. I look forward to being with you again. Until then, remember, you carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all you meet. Bye now.